We're going to start with me and then go to you, okay? <laughs> yeah, why don't we start with you and then go to me? <laughs> okay. okay, my name is Kent Dahlgren, and this is... Ruth Glendinning. And we're going to talk about the Anti-Fragile Playbook. Because we're anti-fragile, and we want you to be, too. <laughs> yes. Now is a good time to start. Good morning, Ruth. <laughs> good morning, Kent. It's been uh, quite a wild ride since the last time we chatted. Yeah, I mean, it's been really, it's been really decent. You know, I, I take notes sometimes before we talk, just sort of to give a rough outline of what we will talk about. And the thing that really jumps out at me this time is network effect. Um, yeah. Is, uh, uh, you know, remember we were talking to Patrick, I had this great conversation with him because the guy's, what is he, a biodynamic engineer? Yeah. I don't even know what that means to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> but what I like, I like to call him a dirt nerd. And because um, he really understands what happens below the surface. Um, you know, I, I grew up next to the, ocean right in the pacific ocean and when you yeah. see the, you see the beach you're like wow sand but as it turns out that sand is teeming with life right right below the surface there's all kinds of things that are digging through there and, and all that it's the same thing with the soil and what patrick was describing is that he says he says you know if you give a neighborhood of like 30 people that you don't have to have all of them augment uh the quality of the soil because that's really one of the best things you can do to to, to improve the quality of the plants um um, he says you only really need a few of those people to do so. And, and what you're really doing is just giving fuel to what happens below the surface. And, and it all it does the rest of the heavy lifting. It's really amazing. And um, I like that a lot because that's actually really applicable to kind of what's coming together for us. And the reason I like this is that it, it, it remains hidden until it doesn't. <laughs> do you know what well, I mean? Yeah, I was going to say that, that it's been actually quantified that you only need 3.5% of any population to affect right. change. Right. And um, it's just the right 3.5%, you yes. know? And, and, and I think that what we have discovered by continuously, you know, refining the vision and listening, I mean, deep listening, in and questioning our own questions, uh, we've been able to continuously emerge a better story. And yep. that draws in people who are in alignment, but also who have the commitment and muscle to, to affect that story again. Right. You know? Yeah, I just wrote speed question mark, because that's actually that's actually a thing. It, it does bring to mind um, because outwardly it looks like it not very much is happening. And you and I and Trudy talked about this last night. It's like um, gearing on a bicycle. Uh, mm -hmm. You could choose one gear where you're just pedaling super fast, but not going, but you're not actually going very fast on the bikes because there's lots of torque. Um, and then there's the other range where it looks like that you're pedaling slow, but you're actually going really fast, right? And so it's really it's just an issue of you know what's the gear ratio, and um, uh, so what I like about the network effect um, metaphor. Is that that really that really clicks and it and when I frame it that way it does remind me of when I worked in the corporate space I found it necessary sometimes I used to say for instance that the the, the most challenging the most challenging the most challenging barrier to getting a new product into the market isn't the competitor it's within the company that's actually what we yeah. ran into at Xerox is that um, Xerox was really really good at protecting the existing business model. Um, what that meant was, is that if there were any what's called disruptive technologies, and I can quantify what that qualify what that means in a moment, if there were any disruptive technologies, Xerox would shut it down or they would just push it out, and sometimes to our own detriment. And and the the, the nomenclature of a disruptive technology actually was introduced 
to the mainstream through a guy named Clayton Christensen, which probably 20 something mm -hmm. years ago. And he actually put a book out. He's from Harvard Business and he put a book out called The Innovator's Dilemma. And a disruptive technology is one that if it, when it eventually grows to maturity, it actually subsumes and replaces the existing model. And in that book, he introduces a few use cases, one of them being the hard drive, where over and over again, the disruptive innovation actually came from within the institution. But the institution was so busy trying to protect its existing model that it just couldn't. It just didn't have the wherewithal to, to allow it to come forward. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of them is um, if an institution is really is really going well with an existing model, they have no incentive to pursue the first $1,000 sale, the, the, the second $5,000 sale, right? There's just, there's a, there's actually an organizational disincentive to do those necessary first steps. And, um, and so what happens is the idea moves laterally outside uh, and then continues. Well, the thing is, is that I've got a pretty good reputation for introducing disruptive technologies from within a large organization. And the reason is that sometimes you got to be low key <laughs> because if they see it, they see it happening, they'll shut it down. And so um, it does bring to mind kind of what we're doing here is that I, I wrote speed with a question mark because it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't look like much is happening, but it's because it's happening subterranean, right? Like it's well, below the surface. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's why it's so good to use um, landscape and biomimicry and soil as yeah. our as our metier to, to discuss this because there you know we've all had that experience where the grass doesn't seem like it's growing at all and all of a sudden you have like four feet of it and yeah. it's it's like nothing's happening till everything is happening and right. and it's our it's our own um, human entrainment to to not notice the little details you know because we're always looking at the bigger story because that's what we have to interact with on a daily level. Right. And we have to be present to that. And it's a, it's a real, um, it's, it's a real trick to be telescopic is to say as above, so below if things are, are happening above. We have to know things are happening below, Indeed. but we haven't really been in practice to speak about it that way. We're just looking for the big, you know, crash. And so, um, and obviously what's happening in Afghanistan is a really good example that all of us knew it wasn't working. Like, and, and they, they, that's what all the news reports are about. For years, people at every level were like, this is not working, this is not what we want to do. But we were helpless to do anything because it was being you know, created at, at a level so far out of our influence. Indeed. As we pay attention differently, as we're using these tools of technology, to shine the light on the problem, you see it was all happening at this micro level. Yes. That there were seeds that were planted. And as Patrick says, you know, when you plant a seed, you plant the root. Indeed. So it's already in play the minute that, that, that those elements are put into the um, environment. And so even though it feels like, you know, for you and I, when we started talking about the anti-fragile playbook, that was almost a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, probably almost to the day, in fact. And it seemed like such an easy, you know, snap to it that's so obvious. But it took a whole, it's taken a whole lot of work to actually root that in um, the existing environment. And the environment had to change, you know, and, and to balance it out. So here we are with these ideas for communities and 
now we're finally at a point where we have the right soil. You know, we have the right elements. We have all the right pieces. And so I think that that's why in the even with all of the other things that have been happening in our lives, all of a sudden it's like, wow, we have a thing. You know, the shoots are, are showing through the ground. Well, so. in fact, as I had talked about during our, our, our meeting last night, um, you know, I was sharing with the group the experience I had. Um, uh, what happened in uh, the early 2000s is the city of Portland, Oregon, passed a resolution to uh, to approve 19 skateboard parks. It was a system of parks. And um, and the story behind that is that is that we had worked with um, people within the city government to help pass a bond levy to, to the tune of half million dollars. So we had done phone banks and canvassing and, and the whole deal. And this is not like, it's not like we had done nothing before that. It's actually for a lot of years we did stuff, but we got to the point where they had enough trust within the institution that they would allow us to do that, which is no small feat, by the way, because the skateboarders that, you know, we're not oh, yeah. <laughs> we're a, an unruly bunch, but as it turns out, we're pretty fearless as it pertains to a phone bank and uh, canvassing. So um, we passed a half million dollar levy. The city said, okay, well, you can put together a, a committee to get it to, to build two skate parks. And, and we had learned our lesson not to do it the way we did before. What we did before was was created a committee of people that looked like us. That was a disaster. So this time around, we had um, explicitly created the favor uh, of there was this guy, Rod Watanik. Actually, I'm, I'm a huge fan. He had he was a veteran in building skate parks, um, but he had no back. He, he's not a skateboarder. He, for him, the skateboard park was an entry point for a multi-use recreational amenity. So for him, it was a, it was a way to leverage what people think of as a single use amenity and turn it, pivot and turn it into a true inclusive multi-use amenity. And to that end, he worked uh, really hard to make sure that we were, um, 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 had a committee of people that just weren't skateboarders. They were the risk, mm -hmm. uh, the risk manager for the local uh, tri-metro um, um, transportation uh, entity, people, you know, the buses and the light rail, uh, a cop, um, a parent, uh, uh, Linda, as I told you a lot about Linda, she's a, a really dedicated activist. And, um, and the first thing we did is we, 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 that created a lens of inclusivity, but it also allowed us to bring in a lot of the stuff that sits below the surface. Linda, for instance, just to use one example of the many that were on the committee. Um, the city had annexed an entire part of the city and they started taxing them, but they hadn't actually created any services. So Linda you know, kind of came out of the field and spent literally decades making sure that the city actually added the services that they said that they were going to when they started taxing the people. And Linda taps into substantially deep roots, right? Just getting right to that. Um, so what that meant is that she becomes super effective as an activist um, by leveraging that which is beneath the surface in a way that 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 people wouldn't be wouldn't wouldn't normally see, right? This is a thing where like the ordinary lens is uh, well you know, what's this, what's this, what's this, but they don't recognize what's under the surface. And, and what it, what it did is that it actually changed it significantly. The other thing that we did is that rather than building big things, we went small, but everywhere. So we, we started building what we would call skate spots and dots, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So it created, it was like, well, I mean, honestly, it's really the same as what I had done. I had learned about activism from people who had, you know, cut their teeth during the civil rights era and they would take me out on bike rides and we would throw wildflower seeds into empty lots in the red line yeah, that's area. That's one of my favorite stories. I love that. 
Yeah, and uh, and um, and what it would do is create these sort of gorilla parks. And so, you know, I'd learned this from people. Um, you can do this, and so you know, it, it's very reminiscent of you know, well, this, the Portland city of Portland is. As they said, well, geez, you know, not only not only is this a good plan, but it's also got all the it's all it's also got all the from the roots up support. Um, we've chosen the sites. We've I mean, we did all this stuff, and so you know, having the the, the council approve it was you know almost a foregone conclusion because we did all the heavy lifting and you start in the roots to do so and it's really the same way that you introduce a disruptive technology it's it's literally the same thing you do it's the same methodology you start deep and you and you and you invest in the roots and then it manifests and you almost can't shut it down after that so in, in effect we're really doing the same thing um it's really following the same methodology and um uh and it's funny because again, I wrote, I have this list of things, but I hadn't wrote speed with a question mark because outwardly it, it can be, it, you know, what's, what's going on, but, but what, what people may not recognize is that this is, this is deep <laughs> and therefore it's broad. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, it, it, and again, you know, it, speed is such an interesting thing because we've been acculturated um, to have immediate outcomes, immediate feedback. And we've lost our patience, you know, and um, and and we've lost track. We've we've lost track of our place in the journey. And this is one of the reasons that it's it's really important to have things operating in an intergenerational way, using the trees and the root webs as their as our model. Um, that the older trees provide shade and and nutrients to the younger trees coming up. Right. But it's so it's an investment, you know, it's a it's a it's an ongoing 360 investment. Right. And when you know, so we have this this moment where we have access to all the tools for transparency and, and that we can speed the process. But what we're urging people to do, and which we're, we've done ourselves in this, is we've be, we've really been testing the integrity of the process is to say, you know, the lessons learned from your skateboard advocacy and, you know, that having really tangible, meaningful ways for people to connect because they're seeing the value in their own lives. And this goes back to something we've talked about a lot is, you know, by slowing the process, we engage empathy. We engage this connectedness that can't happen otherwise. So we're not connected by these external measurements we're aligning with our internal values yeah and that's a longer process but once as you said you know once it it takes it spreads very quickly right and, then, and go ahead yeah well i was gonna say and, and so, so it goes back to our theme that seems to be happening over the last month which is very slow then extremely fast it's yeah. like there's no you know there's no you know, there's been, at least in my circles, there's been a lot of discussion around um, the stage theory. Like we just move in these like linear measurable stages. Right. And the truth is, is that we're doing a dance. You know, it's, it's, it's three steps forward, two steps back because you're learning with each step. You're learning as part of the process. Right, but there's and another what we're doing is, that. It's a dance. Yeah. Well, it, it was just gonna say, it's like, so that's so part of the process is re-engaging people in the natural um, uh, flow of learning. Yeah. And that's, a, and, and, and then creating a language around that. And that's where we are now, you know, with these, these communities. 
Well, that was, that was reminiscent of the dream I had last night. It was a reminder of how easily I can move in and out of groups <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's not just, it's not just a linear thing. It's, it's, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's slowing down and, and disappearing mm -hmm. into the backdrop, which I'm pretty decent at going, doing. And so, um, the, the, the skateboard advocacy was not really about skateboarding. It was about taking, um, a single use amenity, which is the same thing as a dog park, really. like create a, a, create a place at the far edge of a park, wrap it in a fence and have the dogs go there. Like that's really what a, a skate park is. And so what we would do is we would take the energy around that. And then we would engage with other members of the community who were similarly mar um, marginalized and then work to update the master plan as it pertained to the recreational use of space. Because within our society, it's often illegal to exist in the public without being a customer. And then we call that loitering, right? So um, if you can update the master plan as it pertains to recreational use of space, you have created an inclusive space for people who aren't necessarily customers. And most people don't look at it in those starker terms, but if you're a marginalized group, it's definitely that. So, um, so that was, you know, it's funny because that was gameplay for where we are now. Well, and, and I think that, that just to add a little complexity to that, um, we, when we talk about people being consumers, we only look at them in hard capital, in money, right. you know? And, but the truth is, is that their investment of time in a space makes that space valuable. Yes. You know, their in investment of attention brings forward elements that wouldn't be there otherwise. So right. being a, an, a, an engaged observer is highly valuable. And when we were talking about, you know, how do we uh, create a new way of a new neighborhood story around engagement? Part of that is having people who know the neighborhood be the uh, arbiters of, of value of what people are contributing. Right. Is to say, wait a minute, this person, when they do their daily walk, they make sure that there's no extra litter on the street. Yes. Or they need to know if somebody's dog is like their pattern has shifted, you know, right. where it's like, why is that dog barking so much? Because that's not the story as a dog barks right on cue. Thank you very right. much. Back to Ruby. So it is Ruby. <laughs> Called it. So, um, but, the, but the whole idea being that we have to revalue people's contribution yeah. and take it out of just that, that monetary value that is purely transactional. Yeah. We, you know, neighborhoods rather than being economic zones solely or public places or the commons, it needs to be a place where we're creating these wisdom exchanges and building a sustainable wealth because right. we've, we've, we've allied on trust and we have, uh, we understand that because there's times all of us, yes, it's great to be a consumer when, you know, to be able to produce and do that, but that's not all who we are. Yeah. Our humanity is much more complex and much more interesting. Right. Well, in fact, that kind of brings us uh, kind of full circle is that we had introduced the metaphor, you know, Patrick's a biodynamic engineer and he would talk to me about how he could walk a neighborhood and he could, if he could convince a small number of people to invest in a regiment that would um, improve the quality of the soil, it would improve the quality of the plants in the entire neighborhood because mm -hmm. he's really feeding the subterranean network that's already there. And likewise, um, what we're doing is really helping deliver a redistribution of responsibility for governance and social services 
from the centralized authority down to the roots. It doesn't mean that there won't be a centralized authority. It means that maybe at the present, it's a little top heavy. And so that's literally what we're doing. And, and the way to do so, that gateway that allows us to, to, to do that transition in a way that looks slow, but is actually pretty deep, is by tapping into forms of soft capital, which you and I have talked a lot about, which we believe mm-hmm. creates the basis of an anti-fragile system. And, um, and it's, it's funny because, because it is actually really lucrative in hard capital terms. And yet when you speak to people about that, they create, it, it, it creates a blind spot for them. They go, oh, it's this hippie, hippie stuff again. Yeah. But indeed, what we're doing is leveraging the forms of soft capital that we would call subterranean to introduce a disruptive technology which will likely subsume the existing system because it's simply just a better model. And, um, and, uh, and it's a decent, it's a decent methodology. And I kind of want to just get real, real, real um, tactile here because that's actually what this conversation is about is that we had two, we have actually technically four pilot communities in Austin, two of them decided that they would combine. And, you know, that, that's cool how that plays out because we don't really have much of a say in it. Like they're the governing, they're the governing committee, Right. And so um, they were adjacent and then they looked at each other from across Highway 35. And just for those of you that don't know Austin, just like a lot of modern cities, the sea, the, the freeways um, uh, basically split the cities. And that's actually true of Austin. And um, whereas other geographies, um, other cities might have geographic features that, that distinguish one part of town from the other. Austin's grown so quickly and it's been within the era of the automobile that a lot of it is split by freeways. Um, and, and, and the older parts of town were split by the freeway and that actually created a racial and economic boundary, right? So, um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. But anyway, so these two communities looked at each other from across uh, uh, Highway 35, which runs north-south. And what they did is that they redefined, they, 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 they combined their efforts and then they redefined their community, not by neighborhood, which, which is economic zone, right? A neighborhood is typically an economic zone that defines you know, how, um, what's the monetary value of your home relative to other areas. So they redefine the community around the watershed, <laughs> which I love right. actually. So what's great about the watershed is the watershed has been there for, I mean, probably a million years, probably a couple million years. And uh, I'm actually looking at the map of it. And what's great about the watershed is that it runs um, north e- uh, northwest to southeast. It's, it crosses two major highways, and it, and it runs right through without any regard to the economic zones that we call neighborhoods. And it, um, and it connects relatively affluent to lower income. Uh, and actually the watershed has no regard uh, for our, our economic boundaries. And, um, and when, you, when, you, when, you, when you create that kind of boundary, that's pretty interesting because, and I'll say why, because this is really amazing. And then I'll pause and let you talk. Um, what it creates is the basis by which um, a hyper-local community can calibrate its economic footprint to its watershed. <laughs> and what's really amazing about that is that means that the community can not only deliver its own economic revival and self-fund their own social services for the community, but they can also begin investing in uh, the improvement of the ecology on a local level. And, and in very practical terms, what that means is that a percentage of the fees that are generated would go towards encouraging a small number of people, landowners, to invest in the quality of the soil so it delivers the network effect 
um, necessary to improve the ecological quality of the entire watershed. And that's pretty neat, man. Like, uh, I mean, how many times are people saying, we got to do something about the environment? That's great. But if you don't have control over where, how are you going to pull that off? And, and, you know, I think it's clear that governments don't really have much interest in doing so. But in this particular model, this ends up, this ends up being people saying, well, let's just look at what's at our feet. What can we do? And, uh, and that's a pretty powerful thing. Um, I like it. Yeah. It, it, and it's, it's, again, it goes back to what we've, we've always talked about is as above, so below. Indeed. It's, is that it's, so, so it's in alignment with that. There's, you know, all commerce has emerged along waterways. Yes. That is just because without water, you don't have a way to sustain. You just, it's just how it is. So we're, we're getting back to some ancient uh, modeling. You yes. know, we're just feeding into that. The other is that it creates a commons mm-hmm. that, you know, that doesn't have to be a constructed commons. It's completely natural capital. It is, and, and what you find, I have a friend who works for a nonprofit and um, one of the things they do is they've been mapping the underwater uh, rivers and streams of Texas, and they're finding that there's a natural affinity with the above ground trails. And certainly when people were creating these trails, um, they didn't have the technology to, they didn't have LIDAR, you know, they couldn't go down and actually see where the rivers were. Mm-hmm. And so this is just part of a, a natural engagement for people. It's like we, we, we seek water. It's, it's part of our human condition. So we seek water. We follow it even when we can't see it. We feel mm-hmm. it. There's an energetic connection. And then on top of that, you know, we have always built our trade around water. Yes. So having this, when you had that big aha around this, it was just, it resonated with everybody completely immediately because they're like, oh, that's right. I'm human. I like water. Yay. We yeah. like water. But it also um, takes away. So it's a natural commons. And, and, yeah. and, and that's what we need to look for more because when we get into public spaces, you know, when there's a skate park or when there's a green space or whatever, you know, it, it requires, as you said, people to engage consumption yeah. and to prove their, their, their worth to be part of it. Underground water, underground soil doesn't, it, you don't have to prove your worth. You just have to engage yeah. and be in um, alignment with what's going to grow. So this is why I think that, and, and as you noted, and, and anybody here in Austin knows that 35 just divides the city. Yeah, half. it was done specific. It, there, there was agenda behind it, you know, oh, yeah. for sure. And so what this does is it just moves all that out of the way. It's all of the political stuff's out of the way, all of the opinion, all of the whatever transactional perception is of value. Right. And it just gets straight to the fact that the water is like, nope, dude, this is what we're doing. I'm going the way that the, that the, the world needs. And you guys will come to me. No, I like that about I like that about water. I mean, I, I grew up in the Northwest. The river, the water is going to do what the water is going to do. It, like, it has very little regard for for your for your attempts to. Well, like I, I, I always I always found it just so amusing. You know, when people in the Mississippi River Delta would be shocked that their banks were flooded. I'm like, dude, that's why it's called the Mighty Mississippi. It's like, no, this is what I'm doing. 
yeah. you guys need to practice what I'm preaching. So. <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, I like that. I like that. Uh, Ruby is, is like, I like water too. <laughs> yeah. For those who haven't met Ruby, she is a uh, seven month old uh, pit puppy and oh, she's super she's sweet. A, a really sweet. Um, um, I do like that. Um, you were telling me about the root of the word welcome is well, which, well, the, yeah. which was the quantifiable capacity um, of a, of a well's ability to sustain a population. It defined the footprint of a community was mm-hmm. it's what's its watershed. So um, I'm liking that a lot. And uh, I had been writing an article for months, just off and on about how to, how to create a, a, a basically a, a quarter by quarter plan to transition um, top down consumer-based economy towards one that is calibrated to the watershed. It doesn't mean it's all or nothing. It doesn't mean it's if is. It doesn't mean it's if this or that. What it means is that it creates a basis by which we could better calibrate our economic expression to the watershed, um, uh, and reward people for doing so. But to do so in a way that people begin to recognize that there's actual benefit in doing it. So it's kind of fun to do. I mean, as we end up encountering, what was the other one, uh, William? he ends up being like a sustainability engineer. Like it turns out there's people who have studied this stuff. So, um, I mean, it's not my background, but I I dig it. It works out. Um, so I, I, I like that. I like this because it actually allows us to rally around, um, around an affinity, an an affinity group, basically saying we're going to rally what we're doing around the watershed. And, Mm -hmm. um, and it's inclusive to people that are in different neighborhoods, but in particular, those that are on this side of 35 or on that side of 35 or north of 290 or south of 290. Like, I, I'm, I'm kind of dig it. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting how the timing of this is, is because actually at, at the current time, the city of Austin has received some, the state of Texas actually has allocated some money. Uh, by happenstance, I was actually at this meeting at the Texas Department of Transportation where they allocated money to do something about 35 because 35, mm-hmm. um, Austin's a strange city in that it's relatively oriented north-south basically because of geography. It's got a, a fault line and a river and the whole deal. And so the freeway is a little bit thin. The city's built up next to it. And so it, it's created some some congestion in any way. So they got a plan about how to actually reimagine this. And this is something a lot of cities have, have considered is like, how can we actually bring parts of the city back together again? And so um, it's cool because we're talking about a virtual community, which might create um, a transactional and interactional and uh, uh, sort of transcendent relationship before that even happens. So we could actually inform that, that planning process, which I like a lot. Because of course we're not talking any infrastructure costs. Like, no, you know, no, no, no. I, I mean, there's, there's two things that I really, um, that are, I think are really important to bring forward is by mapping it to the watershed, we include the houseless. Yes. Um, that, that it's not limited to if you have the right container for yes. your work. It's just a way to engage. And the other is there was a uh, story on KUT this morning about the 35 reimagining. Mm-hmm. And the big concern is that it's going to displace hundreds of people. Yes who have, because they built a life, you know, close to it. So it's just like the mighty Mississippi displaces farmers who farm too close. People who have built lives and livelihoods um, close to the river called 35 are going to be pushed out for decades. 
And so we need to be creative and um, open to new formations of these, these uh, marketplaces, of these mm-hmm. connections, and understanding that it's absolutely all inclusive because we're not limiting people by the container that they're held in, whether it's a house or an apartment or the park, you know, whatever it's going to be, you still have something to bring to the table. And the other is that as these, as these, these, uh, this work is done on 35 and it pushes people out of their, their rooted position, they need a place to land because they're, purposes are still part of the neighborhood they're existing participants and so that's what so uh, you know it's like talking about speed again there's this kind of this slow-mo discussion but then it's going to hit like a ton of bricks yeah all of a sudden it's there's no option that's another quality to this this plan that people frequently overlook is um the explicit the explicit statement is that it includes those that are not necessarily within homes. This is sort of my criticism of next door. Like it's closed to people unless you're actually in an apartment or a home, but there's people that are actually investing in the quality of the neighborhood. They just happen to be outdoors. And sometimes they live in cars and sometimes they're um, um, camping in driveways in a car because they're in transition. And sometimes they're couch surfing and, uh, and sometimes uh, they're in a tent in the, in the, in the, in the forest. And uh, boy, people really put up their nose at that. But, um, but I think that they, might not have the luxury to do so as things continue. And, um, and so we explicitly include them. Um, yeah. Uh, because, because why wouldn't you, right? Um, well, in, in, you know, in Washington state um, this week, they made it, uh, you can homestead in your car. Right. So, and, cause, and that, that's really a sign of the times, you know, it's just like, this is where people are, are conducting their lives. And, why wouldn't we find a way for those in the greatest need to engage in productive solutions? It just, it's counterintuitive to say, we're going to exclude the people who need it most. Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, absolutely have been proven to be very creative and innovative. Well, I was going to say, I mean, one of the benefits of my, my brush with homelessness in 2017 was a recognition that there is vast creativity out there. Um, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, certainly there's a lot of people that are taking drugs. I totally get it. Uh, you know, what is the neurotypical response to trauma and betrayal, right? I mean, what, what do you expect? At the same time, there's a lot of people that are really, um, they, they really want to prove themselves. And, um, and that's a rough circumstance from the being. So that, so it's not hard to find people that are, they're, they're willing to really get in there and start doing some, some work. And so, you know, um, we're tapping into that productive capacity as well. And what I, what I, um, I mean, what I dig is that other people just overlook it and that just creates nothing but opportunity for us and fuel for this. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so we've got two pilot teams that looked at each other from across the freeway, decided to come together. And now we've got an admin team of seven and it includes uh, a woman who has vast experience launching buy nothing groups, um, you know, uh, over 5,000 of them. So that's over a million mm-hmm. members you want to talk about some roots. This is, this is a person who not just doesn't just have that experience, but that experience informs the wisdom to allow her to say things like, okay, guys, listen, I think I see something coming. And um, some of her prior colleagues had sort of dismissed it as being negative. She's not being negative. She's saying, y'all, the, the levy's going to break and we better do some planning. So she just, you know, the thing is, is that it's great to have her part of the conversations because she's like, oh, like, 
we should consider this. And, and we actually ended up having a really decent conversation about governance last night, which is very practical governance, not like imaginary governance. It's like very real, like how do we address this issue when it happens? Um, and this is coming from a place of wisdom. And, um, and, uh, and she has passions about gift economy, which is all that stuff that sits below the surface. It's easy for people to overlook. And, uh, and so I'm really digging that. Um, uh, we've got another woman who actually has substantial experience with um, co-ops and she's a designer. So we actually, I'm holding a flyer in my hand that she's created. It's beautiful actually. Um, and it's got a list of the people who can basically um, uh, create additional household um, income because it's allowing them to, to, to market and sell to their own community. Um, and, and the byproduct of doing that is it funds services for the community, which um, could fund things like childcare services, classes that help people launch a home-based business, a loaning library, community gardens, shared neighborhood workspace, meet your neighbor program, backyard gardening techniques, classes that teach that, um, discounted health insurance. Actually, this is something that we talked about in a prior podcast where you could actually negotiate basically as a co-op, um, cheaper health insurance and, uh, you know, financial safety net for, uh, for the next sort of disaster. Um, it's cool because it's really just building incentive for people to keep that, keep that here. And so it's great to actually work with her, um, uh, her, her partner who actually, uh, he's a doer and a maker. That's really, really great. Um, and uh, I'm actually going to give him some some baking stuff. I got to get to the storage unit to do that. Um, I mean, I don't know if I have to go through all of the people, but uh, but I mean, those are just a good, good examples of like, um, I remember when her partner was talking about his outrage, because it's one of the conversations we have. Mm-hmm. His outrage is, is that she's got, his partner has this vast wisdom and experience and has been basically discarded by the system because she's old, but she's not old. She's exactly right. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing with the, with the, the existing system overlooks people because of age or because of whatever, and just throws them on the floor. And, and actually these people have exactly the experience we need to get this done. And so from the outside looking in, it's like, well, you know, there's not much going on, but there's actually a lot because the roots run deep. Right. And uh, uh, yeah. so that's the thing I've got here is I got team seven, but it's more than seven. It's like, you've got to look at the, the roots are running, you know, 60 feet deep um, and in a way that transcends the freeway and the neighborhood and gets right into the watershed, the wella. <laughs> I mean, I love it actually. There's, it, it really clicks. Um, so man, I'm digging it. Well, and, and I think too, that, um, you know, and as, as has come together as soon as like key elements, the right framework, the right container is there, it emerges the new story. So, um, you know, all of us have had experiences being caregivers, whether it's a parent or if we're taking care of a loved one, of, you know, the, who's disabled or ill or aging. And you just do what's in front of you. But boy, I know from my years of the two really intense years I had of uh, being a caregiver for Keith that to have to be able to tag out for an hour and just take a breath because you have someone you can trust that cares about what you care about. And those kinds of things can't be done in a purely transactional marketplace. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to find ways to engage that soft capital, but you put it a form around it. Right. Because it's, it's, it's just hard for people, you know, life is moving 
excessively slow and unbelievably fast at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to be present to that. And, um, and it's clear that external institutions, they're working on a set of averages that is none of us. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like they're, they're, we can understand it intellectually, but it doesn't resonate personally because you're like, but here's all my exceptions. Yeah. And so if we're, if we're living in a world of exceptions, we need a new system. Yep. Well, I mean, what you just described is this is one of the many reasons why a disruptive technology is usually discouraged from within the institution. Uh, what they've got are hard numbers and hard numbers. Um, I mean, we're just basically losers in that equation, which is actually describes the state of current mm-hmm. politics, right? I mean, you know, there's no political capital in the poor, so why bother? Um, right. But they, of course, what they miss is that, <laughs> like, a fundamental, a fundamental lesson of politics is that if you lose your constituents, if you lose your constituents, you've got no power base, <laughs> you've got nothing. Well, and what they're what they're doing is rallying around numbers. But this is really the same as like I remember being at Xerox and just sitting in a room of, of smug executives who would say. Well, according to this graph, we are the market leader in the 24 to 36 page a minute color laser market. I was like, Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist outside these walls. That's a completely, completely invented constraint. That doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. And whether people know it or not, they're finding their 3.5%. They're finding their dedicated champions and what that translates to in, in the existing predatory system capital mm-hmm. system, is that those 3.5 percent are your ride or die you know right. that they are going to keep feeding your machine because they're getting great benefit out of it and they're not yep. they're ignoring the cost of it well what's coming now with technology is the light is literally on you know yep. and so you can't turn away from the actual cost so well, instead of if, instead of you know being pulled into that rabbit hole of trying to justify anything, you go okay, great. So let's just say this this isn't working. Mm-hmm. Let's create something that works. But by let's, it's like let's collaborate. Let's have collaborative capitalism. I'm not anti-capitalism. I'm anti-predatory capitalism. Yeah, and it's I'm even... anti you know th- this this lie that things are magically happening. It's like, there's, you know, there's a a great quote from a TV show that says, there's always a price to magic. Somebody is paying it. So what we're doing is creating a way for those who are paying into the costs of the system, they're bearing the cost of the system to actually transform that into producing value for themselves and their neighbors. Well, and I'm telling you, this is this is a real kind of a rant topic for me. Is that a lot of the reason why people are nasty is they believe that we're in a state of scar- of scarcity. And I always mm-hmm. say it's not my fault you're a crappy entrepreneur, right? I mean, honestly, don't don't push your 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 crankiness on me. Like the fact mm-hmm. that you're not able to recognize that there's more than enough energy necessary to get this job done speaks to your lack of creativity. That has nothing to do with me, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I have encountered this in industry. This is an allegorical um, connection here is um, I just had this interaction with a former colleague last night and, uh, and she was like, uh, you know, what is your experience working with this one guy? Well, the, the guy that she's talking about, I worked, I worked with at this company and he was the engineering manager. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and what we would do at this company is that we would monitor transactions for fraud. 
and at a vast scale, like 7 billion devices. That's a B, not M. 7 billion devices. Mm -hmm. So it's every single Amazon transaction, every single Citibank transaction, but also across thousands of other vendors. And we could watch crime behavior that would manifest across different vendors. So it might start on porn sites and then it might go to adult sites and it might go to gambling and then it would go to banking. And we could watch basically a crime ring. This is what would happen in Russia or in China. They would create banks of virtualized mobile devices uh, using what are basically called sybils or fake accounts. And they would um, begin here, then they would go there. They would basically start laundering money on behalf of crime or whatever. So the cool thing is that you get this lens, a sort of lens of what's going on. And then you could introduce um, technology that would make it more difficult to prove who they were. And of course, they didn't have any insight. Um, so anyway, that's what I did. That was my job. And, um, and so I uh, was responsible for the mobile platform and what's called recognition, the ability to recognize a device and recognize the use of symbols. That's, that's my thing. And, um, and I had spent a lot of years in an adjacent industry, in the security industry, managing what are called software agents, which if you look this up, software agents is a domain. It's part of the domain of distributed artificial intelligence. So there are software agents acting on behalf of a certain thing that are distributed. And so there are certain criteria necessary to satisfy the, um, that, 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 that definition of, of a software agent. When you do this and you do this and you do this, you become a software agent. So anyway, I was at this company and, and I, was, I was in a meeting with the engineers and they were talking about what they were adding. And I said, guys, we've just crossed the threshold into a software agent, which is a significant thing for a business. And the reason I know this is because I had spent years managing these, this technology. What it is, it's about a 10X, sometimes more valuation increase for the company because you are effectively running a, a storefront on, on a, on a host, if you will. So um, I had worked for a company that had these agents on a million critical devices on, on, on finance, banking, insurance, retail. Um, um, uh, I mean, all that stuff. So I'm talking like JP Morgan, Citibank, Deutsche Bank, <laughs> I mean, just all those, all their critical servers were running these agents when I was in the security industry. It was a million servers is what made that company valuable. Mm -hmm. But here, I was in a different company and I realized this guy just told me that they have crossed the threshold from SDK on a mobile to agent on 7 billion devices. <laughs> and I said, guys, we've just, we've just delivered a 10X increase to valuation. I know this because I've been there. And the answer I got was, no, we don't do agents because this is, this is right. what constrains people's creativity is they become pedantic about things. And so what I did is that I orchestrated a meeting with this engineering manager and the chief technology officer. And then I, then I showed on a slide the computer science domain definition from the Association of Computing Machines. By the way, that's like the computer science domain. That, that sets the, the standard on this. These are the things you have to do to satisfy the criteria of a software agent. And these are the things that you're doing. And I demonstrated side by side, you have crossed that threshold. And the room was filled with engineers with their arms folded and said, but, but we don't do agents. And I said, no, you, you do. Actually, we're doing it right mm -hmm. now. I also did the same thing with artificial intelligence, which is, as it turns out, I hate using that nomenclature because the standard for AI is a lot lower than people realize. Nonetheless, they were already there. So, um, so rather than saying we have the basis by which we can detect fraud patterns within milliseconds using distributed artificial intelligence across billions of devices, they could say that and would have been truthful. 
they chose instead to say, no, we don't do those things. And as a consequence, they failed because they were bought by uh, a credit bureau and are basically being dismantled. This is what happens all the time, right? And this is a, this is a, a real-time example from my career that I watched happen within the domain of the private sector. These people are supposed to be creative. They're supposed to be entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial, but they're, but they're close to it. And I've had this experience over and over again. So then what they do is they come at the world from a place of scarcity, but it's a reflection of their, of their, they're, they're crappy entrepreneurs. And part of it is because they have a pre-filter in place that tells them these things aren't true, even when confronted with yeah. proof to the other, to the contrary. I'm just astounded by it. And now well, we're at, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that, that, you know, one of the projects I've been creating is the lexicon of future. Yeah. And, and this brings to mind um, the word Zeric, Z-E-R-I-C. Yes. I love that, that word uh, that I found for X because, I don't know if y'all know, the hardest words to find are X, Y, J, and Q, in case anybody's taking note. Um, but, but I love the way that you um, interpreted it, which is that, you know, finding the abundance in the scarcity yeah. is that, that to say, okay, if you're only looking for blue flowers, if you don't see blue flowers, you say, there's no flowers here. But if what you do is say, I'm going to just look for flowers and you start noticing the blue elements of other flowers, yes, then you think there's a huge, there's just blue everywhere, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. the same thing you were talking about is that you were pointing out that they had a 7 billion item market, right? Mm -hmm. And but because this person was just looking through this one tiny peephole of opportunity, it was like there's nothing here. No, they'd been so, told. They'd been told it was dogma. Well, they'd well, been told it was not part of the dogma. That the accepted well, dogma was from the CEO. My, my point you know. is, the point is, is that they were rewarded for not looking for other opportunities. That's that's right. That's exactly right. This is that the CEO had set the stage. The CEO was a very very much a cult of personality. The CEO had said, "This is what we do," and he would he would penalize those who deviated from that that's exactly what you're saying i mean that's i, I that's my interpretation of what you're saying but that's actually what yes. happened he, he penalized right. those who ran, ran counter to his vision so what it did is that he created a, a culture of sycophants that basically said well i've never heard the ceo say agent before so that can't possibly be true even well, when confronted by the definition of this from the association of computing machinery side by side with their own specification they could not see it they were blind to it so, so what it is, is that people are feeding an ego system instead Indeed. of an ecosystem. Indeed. And, and that, that's very transactional. Well, you know, indeed. it's we're at survival. Right. And so the CEO cashed out, he sold it. So he, he sees it as a success. He's probably sitting in his chair saying, you know, I, I, I did it. I pulled it off. But in fact, um, what he's blind to because of the ego is that he could have had a 10x increase in that if, if only he hadn't invested in uh, a culture of sycophants, basically. And, well, um, you know, and it's, it's common, dude. <laughs> this, is not a, this is not a rare case. You know. I think it's, and, and I keep trying to take it out of the business tech sector because we want to help people see the pattern. Oh, yes. You know, oh, yes. It's, it's to, to say, okay, this is our entry point because we are all familiar with corporate life and business and yeah. whether we've been in it or we've observed it or we've watched a movie or whatever, right? Right. And I want to keep bringing us into the natural story. Uh -huh. It's like, how can we translate this to the environment that we see around us? Because mm -hmm. there's so much untapped capital. 
and not from a uh, transactional thing, like we have to turn everything into money. Right. It's to say, wow, how do I feel? You right. know, how do I feel when I'm in surrounded by green? How do I feel knowing that there's a river underneath me that is caring for the environment, even when I'm not aware of it? Right. You know, it's, we're trying to, to work to um, create those simple entry points to complexity yeah. so that people can say, oh, I can look through this, this, you know, it's like looking at a kaleidoscope, right? Right. You look through that little hole and at first you don't see, you just kind of get a sense of the colors and then it forms into these amazing patterns and right. it stimulates you to look at the world in a different way. Right. We need to keep that eight-year-old vision yep. of the world. Yeah. And that's what, you know, and it, it works out perfectly because your girls are the perfect age for everything we're talking about. That's true. And so it's a, it's a pretty good test case. And well, so it's, um, so, you know, I, I like that what we're doing is giving people um, pathways into this natural story of value. Right. Well, the, so the, the pinhole that you're talking about in terms mm -hmm. of governance is um, the, 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 the filter that people have typically constructed around ego that we call politics is um, only the government can fund these things. And if the private sector does it, then they must be up to no good, right? And uh, so one of the, probably the most read articles and probably one of the most listened to podcasts is the one that says, is this communism? Because what people are trying to do is figure out what is it that they're doing? And they're trying to put it within the framework. They're trying to do their side-by-side -side comparison. And, mm -hmm. um, and it, and it, takes it top down. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. It does acknowledge private party owner, uh, private property ownership. Um, it does acknowledge free market exchange. Therefore it fits within the framework of people call capitalism, but erroneously because capitalism is turns mm -hmm. out something else. And um, it's not corporatism, although it does acknowledge that there's corporations. Um, it does have social services that doesn't qualify as socialism, right? I mean, like, as I like to say, it's really no more socialist than your church group. I mean, come on. So what people try to do, though, is they try to figure out what pigeonhole or box to put it in. And, it, and they, they can't. And it, it ends up being something completely innovative and, and different. And the anticlimax on it is that it's not that terribly unique. It's actually how people structured their mm -hmm. affairs for millennia. And it just happens to be different because of how we've been acculturated where the government mm -hmm. is that one i mean that's why i get people say this all the time well why wouldn't the government do it and my answer is the government seems to be doing a bang-up job of fixing other problems right now don't you think <laughs> right like like maybe maybe if there's room for the community to step forward accept some of the responsibility and and use some of its creativity to find a way to pay for things themselves because maybe the government can't get out of its own way right now i mean honestly that's kind of what's happening so. Well, in, in what, what has been so, um, why this is the right moment to do all this is that people are in this transition state that they know they have this awareness that things just aren't right and mm -hmm. they're not going to get right by themselves because we're disconnected from the natural rebalancing mm -hmm. that, 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 that kind of sense of the lack of rightness is opening them to engage their empathy, understanding that there, there's a shared um, pain and, and grief around how else it could be. Mm -hmm. And in, 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 in some people need to have kids in order to do that, but not everybody does. Right. You know, it's, it's like, cause kids will open you up and remind you and, and do all those things. So here we are, we're in this moment where we're kind of, you know, getting the boat has landed kind of on the shores of wisdom. Mm 
mm-hmm. you know, and that is where we're going to be building this wealth. That is where we exchange these um, stories and engagement points. And, uh, you know, we feel we have a place to be vulnerable, to bring forward what else we need, you know, that you don't have to be so tough right. and say, no, 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 you know, we need to be vulnerable because that's the only way that we're actually going to build trust. So here it is, we have this, this moment, we have the right people around the table. We've, they've already taken control of the story by saying, oh, no, 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 let's combine forces. And, you know, and so we have this, this much stronger uh, container for this. Mm-hmm. And that alone, it's like once it, it's like um, in uh, Braiding Sweetgrass when she's talking about weaving a basket, mm-hmm. you know, you have to do it from the bottom up. You need to have this basis at the bottom. That's the economic engagement because that's the most tangible. Yeah. That you have to go through what we're going through now, which is this middle area where you're starting to look at, you know, what is the, what is the, um, the mindset around it? What? You know, and it's like, so what is, how are we going to describe it? How are we going to language this? How are we going to ask better questions and how are we going to emerge better answers? Mm-hmm. Then you get to the top part where it's actually aspiring, you know, it's, it's moving higher. And so that's where you have a basket instead of a plate right. or a shallow dish, or you actually have aspired and reached that level. And we're so close to that now, you know, yep. that people are already expressing it, but now we're going to codify it. Now we're going to go, okay, great. Now we know, um, you know, what, what uh, the graphic artist has done is given us a visual engagement point right well so to engage with so so to reiterate that in more practical tangible terms there's two things (laughs) i want to say um because it's complimentary by the way so the the one thing i want to say is get back to network effect i went to other communities that we're working with that are in different geographies and told them about the watershed and two of them were like oh my god uh, one is in Charleston. They went immediately and they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're actually looking at what waterways they're tied to. And, and it turns out they've already identified affinity groups that are already committed to the quality of the watershed. So boom, that clicked. And there's a group in Canada that, that was like, oh my God, that's exactly what we can do. Um, and what that means is that they have actually created materials that, that, that are actually being cross-pollinated to different groups. They're not mm-hmm. competitive in any manner because why would they be? They're tied to their local community. So they have nothing but incentive to benefit to, to help others in a spirit of reciprocity which is definitely a vision i had is to create a, a network of, of complementary mm-hmm. efforts um so the rising tide lifts all boats is what i like to say so that is a great example of something that um that that roots deep and rises high in a way that mm-hmm. is completely i mean i'll bet you if anybody's watching what's going on in austin that wouldn't occur to them to watch what's happening in charleston or uh, remote reaches of of uh, canada to, um, to watch innovations sprout because they're not watching the roots. <laughs> this is the thing, it's really great actually. The second thing I would say is that you had a lot of great stuff to say, which we intend to codify in what Trudy calls uh, reports and analytics, but it's not exactly right. It's, it's, actually, um, it's actually creating what might, people might consider a portfolio view of the different communities. And it's actually my intention to create um, a, a, basically um, data around what constitutes the most effective and efficient forms of governance, which is Mm -hmm. actually pretty straightforward to do, is is that every agreement between two or more parties becomes, in the parlance of artificial intelligence, becomes actually what's called a policy. And the policy has 
um, scores in terms of its performance, um, quantitative and qualitative, which I know how to do because I spent a decade in manufacturing and I'm Lean Six Sigma certified. So in the aggregate, what it means is that all things being equal or what they say, ceteris paribus, this community is similar to this community. And if they did A, B, and C, they would affect an improvement of their governance by doing these things. It's actually, this is not magic. This is actually what's done in lots of domains. And I know this because I've done it. And so um, what Ruth is talking about is adding qualities to this that transcend the merely transactional elements of it because we because it creates a basis by which we can incentivize those to root deeper so they rise higher which is pretty fabulous and the mm -hmm. challenge i have is how do we quantify and qualify that and so this is where and why we talk so frequently is you know um what are the qualitative and quantitative measurements which might allow us to to, to reach those points. And this is why we've invested so much around the anti-fragile nomenclature, which brings us to, you know, how do we, how do we acknowledge that which is beneath the surface, what people call gift economy or they call soft capital. So I like it. It's a good, a good wrap up. I don't know. Yeah. 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 It's uh, that, 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 you know, it's just taking a, a, a new, uh, putting a new lens on potential. You yeah. know, that you just see it when you see it. And then when people see it, they can't stop looking at it and wanting to be part of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like talking to you because, you know, you talk about containers and adjacent <laughs> potential, which is borrowed from the domain of um, linguistics, which I love, by the way. But but for me, that's state and state transitions and state transition database uh, uh, metadata, which is actually um, from the domain of um data science. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of fun because Ruth will talk about this and I'll be like, huh, I could use computational forensic linguistics and this to, to actually codify what she's talking about. And Ruth is like, cool. Then what about this? As so we go back and forth, back and forth. Well, and, and, and for me, I'm, I, I'm able to, to soften the pattern messaging out of, take it out of the office and put it back into nature. Yeah. So I think that's, uh, that's part of the fun. Right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's the thing is, is it's that's what you and I keep experimenting with is that um, we have to find what is that right mix is that the 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 the, the environment um, is, is it, we should be drawing inspiration from the environment, but people are acculturated to be like, oh, that's hippie talk. And what we're trying to say is no, just entertain this for a moment. Allegorically, this is actually what we're doing. And, uh, and then just give some practical and tangible examples of how we're doing it. And then they go, hmm, okay, okay. So, I mean, anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, Ruby is, uh, she has no more to say, apparently. It's too bad. We were talking about water. Water, Ruby, water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it's a good talk, man. Yeah. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, um, man, this is, this is exciting times. <laughs> well, the part that's uh, uh, um, the part that really encourages me to meditate uh, frequently is the um, is the is the is the fact that it's um, the innovations are manifesting sometimes a thousand or two thousand miles away um, because it is that roots thing. It's like you know, I, I again, there's no incentive for me to not share innovations with other communities because they're not competing in any manner, right? And uh, and so uh, and so they eagerly await innovations and updates from other communities. And they go, wait, I got something. And so then I share it back. It ends up cross-pollinating, but it's beneath the surface. 
And it's cool because if somebody were watching closely to what's happening in Charleston or what's happening in this or place or this place, right, they wouldn't be aware of the fact that the innovation lab, so to speak, is actually over here. <laughs> right, 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 right. And um, I mean, and this is really this is really similar to what I've done in activism circles is that it might look like things are real quiet, but they're not quiet. It's a whole lot of little groups and they're just simmering, simmering, simmering. So, well, the river is still flowing deep, deep beneath. Right. I, I like this about the Austin creeks as I, I just went and sat in a creek and uh, it's, you know, 10 degrees cooler coming up from the rocks It's because there's a whole river underneath the surface. And, uh, and it's stuff that people don't pay attention to. I wonder at that. I'm just fascinated. I sit there in that creek. It's cleaned through because of the rain and there ain't nobody in that thing last night. And, uh, and I'm looking at the vultures riding the updrafts from the hills. And I feel the water coming up from the rocks beneath me because there's a whole river underneath the surface and who knows how big it is. No one will ever know. I'm amazed by it. Well, uh, I'll, I'll just I'll just uh, wrap it up with the the uh, slogan that San Marcos uses is a river runs through us, uh-huh. and that's that's I, I feel like that that's what we're tapping into yeah. is a shared river of story. No, I'm digging it, man. All right, good uh, good okay. conclusion on that one. All right, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Right, bye. All right, cheers. Bye. Bye.